right. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Hey, just a quick, by the way, um, on that text to give, and I don't know why I, I say this, but um, Holy Spirit put it on my memory. Um, if you come from another church and you're either switching or you're a guest and you use that text to give uh, app, most churches use the same app to, to do the text to give. So if you don't go in and change the recipient, if you just text 84321, it'll go to whoever your previous church was. And if that's what you want, fantastic. I just wanted to point that out. And, uh, but let's move on. Hey, um, welcome to you guys. I am so glad that you are here. I'm so glad to be back. It's been two weeks since I have taught and Gabe's getting tired of me going, you know what it says in Revelation 3.2? Let me explain to you. And she's like, Quit mansplaining the Bible to me. I get it. So anyway, so I'm glad to be here to an audience who can't, you know, give me that kind of feedback. So you just have to listen. Um, but I am excited to be able to continue kind of where I left off. Now, a big thank you to Pastor Craig and to uh, Pastor Jack for teaching while I was gone. It's so nice to be able to get a little bit of a break and step out and go do some mountain climbing and do Tough Mudder and just really relax and do those, those sorts of things. Um, but, but we're back and we're moving in, moving on in our series in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't been here for a while, that's what we're doing. We're going through the book of, a lot of people just call it the book of Revelation. It is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we come into this out of a message series that we did on spiritual warfare. And I think it was a great precursor to the book of Revelation because during spiritual warfare, during when I was teaching that series, I said over and over again that we know that we have the ultimate victory. We know that the enemy is relentless and he won't stop coming at us. As a believer, you are constantly under attack. And we can take great comfort in hearing the phrase, but we know that Jesus Christ has already won the war for us. We fight these battles, but we know that he's won the war. And that's great if you believe that, if you know that to be true. How do we know that to be true? It sounds great, but how do we know it? We know it because of a revelation, because of prophetic revelation that was given to the Apostle John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He was in exile for teaching the gospel. He was told not to, and he refused. And so rather than to kill him or martyr him, which was the norm for the day, they exiled him to this island of Patmos. And since that happened, he did a lot of meditation. He did a lot of prayer. And this is where we find that he received this vision. It's not, as a lot of people misunderstand it, to be a book about war and pain and suffering and judgment and all these things that people think of when they think of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is meant to be a book of hope. It's a book of hope. It's a book that gives us, as Christian believers, the knowledge, just a glimpse of what Jesus had, knowing that no matter what we're going through today, if you persevere, if you hang on, if you don't lose the faith, you will receive the ultimate prize. That can be very, very comforting, especially when it seems like every day something new is happening in the news and we wonder, are things just spiraling out of control? We have this prophetic revelation to show us that nothing is beyond God's control. Nothing is beyond his knowledge. Everything we're going through, he knew at the beginning of time. He can't even put a number on it. From the beginning of time, he knew the kind of things we'd be going through today and he knew the kind of encouragement that we would need to hold on in a storm. And so that's what Revelation is. It's also, now if you've been going here, I, I, you're going to blow this if I ask this question. But if you haven't heard and you're new here, what is a bit of trivia about the book of Revelation that makes it different than any other book in the Bible? Very good. It's the only one that explicitly says, now, you're blessed by reading Scripture at any time, anywhere. This is the only one, though, that explicitly says, says this, Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. <coughs> 
so excuse me, my job is to read it and make it clear. To read the word, to try and make the word clear, try and make it come to life. Your job as a hearer is to take it to heart. Take it to heart means more than just, I'm just going to hear it and go, hey, that was cool. We have to let it change us. We have to let it change how we see the world, how we see our role in the world. That's what taking it to heart truly means. So a little bit out of the ordinary for a lot of churches and even for us, through this book, the entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, I'm going to read, or one of our pastors will read, every single word and every single verse because I don't want to leave anything out. When it says you'll be blessed if you read it, you'll be blessed if you hear it, I'm not going to just say, hey, go read it on your own. It's too important for that. So I'm going to open open us up in prayer. Mm. I need some more coffee. I'm going to open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that, that there's nothing beyond your knowledge. There's nothing that catches you by surprise. There's nothing that we go through today that you didn't know we were going to go through, and you gave us everything that we need, every weapon, every bit of encouragement, and most of all, you gave us the Holy Spirit through your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could stand, we could persevere against everything that comes our way. So, Father, we just pray for your revelation as we go through this message. I pray for boldness, for us to take this to heart and live it. We can hear it, but if we are not doers of the word, then there is no point. Let us be doers of the word, so help us find a soft place in our spirit for your word to reside. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're a note taker... Don't worry about that. There's time for notes later. Just sit back and listen as I go through. I use the New American Standard Version, uh, which just happens to be my personal favorite version. And I'm going to read this. It's 1 through 22 of chapter 3 of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember that you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and I have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning 
of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let's take a closer look now at these churches. This is clearly a message that's intended to encourage and exhort, and in some cases to warn and reprove and reproach some of these churches. So let's take a closer look. In chapter 2, we went through four churches. We're going to go through uh, three more here. So starting in chapter 3, Revelation 3.1, I'm just going to read this one to you. They all start out pretty much the same way. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Okay, a little bit about Sardis. Sardis was an ancient city, okay? It's about, about 1,500 uh, feet above the surrounding landscape. Okay, so it's an old, old city. It has been conquered a couple times, like most cities in that area at that time. They were constantly getting conquered. But sitting on a 1,500-foot-tall precipice with a fortress on top of that made it pretty close to impregnable. Okay, so it hadn't been conquered too many times. Um, so therefore, it had ancient, ancient temples. It had a temple of Artemis, uh, a Greek god Artemis, that was actually twice the size of the entire Parthenon. We've all seen pictures of the Parthenon, right? This one temple to Artemis was twice the size of the Parthenon. It had been there. It had stood for a long time. Fun fact, we've all heard of Aesop's fables, right? He was from Sardis. That's where he was from. That's where he was when he wrote his fables. Now, there was a huge, huge church there, okay? It was enormous, and it had been standing for a long time, so it had a well, first as a synagogue, and then it had transformed into a Christian church. But here's a problem. Although it was enormous, it was actually one of the few that was physically built in the middle of town. Most synagogues were on the outskirts of town. This one was right dead center in the middle of town, showing its place of prominence there uh, for, for eons it had been, or for generations anyway it had been. But this church, although it was huge and on the surface looked like it had everything, it was dead. It was spiritually dead. Okay, the church itself had become an idol. It had become an idol. It had become a thing to belong to the church in Sardis. Where do you go? Oh, I go to the church in Sardis. It was a thing. People would come from, from towns and cities around there just to come there and say, I went to this church. It was massive. Okay, it's kind of what we would call a mega church like today. But it had status because it was old and it was very, very well respected, at least it had been. But here's the problem. It had slowly started to die as people's eyes shifted off of the creator and onto what they had created. Shifted away from God and onto this monument that they had built. In fact, there's a scholar who categorizes the stages of church growth. It's not, not every church goes through these, but many, many churches go through these stages. They start with a man, okay? That man being Jesus Christ starts the church, okay? Then they move into a phase called, that he calls a movement, meaning the people catch fire. They catch fire. They're excited. They're zealous, 
and they start following after God and they want it to do better and they engage and they do things. But at some point, the church as it grows turns into a machine. Turns into a machine that needs to be fed. It needs to be fed. And it starts to get top heavy with either people or or commitments financially, different things like that. It becomes kind of a self-perpetuating machine. You could plug anybody in and it would just keep on going. And then at some point, which is what's happening here to the church in Sardis, it becomes a monument. It becomes a monument that really is, might as well be a museum. You show up, you look at it, you enjoy it, and then you go home. Museums are meant to be enjoyed. They're not necessarily life-changing things. Shouldn't be the goal of a church to become a monument, but the church in Sardis had become that. The people there were placing membership in this church above Jesus Christ, above the gospel. And this is where they were. So, Revelation 3.3, we have this one on screen. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. That sounds serious. That's a warning. If you've ever heard a warning, that's what it is. Now, this coming to you where it says you will not know at what hour I will come to you, just to be clear, this is not the second coming. Okay, this is not what he's talking about here. Second coming, as Christians, we should be looking forward to that. This is a little bit more of a rebuke right here that he's given to them, and it reminds us of this special judgment that's just last chapter, uh, Revelation 2.5, when he's talking to Ephesus, or he's giving this prophetic message to Ephesus. Revelation 2.5, he says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and, remove, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Remember that imagery of a lampstand. The lampstand is the church itself. The lampstand itself doesn't give light. The lampstand is there to hold up, to illuminate, to, to help display that light. Just as the church is, we're to display the light of Christ. We don't create our own. We reflect and display his. So this is the warning that he's giving to them. Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes thus will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So a little bit about this. If you know in the Bible, anytime, if it's Jesus speaking to someone, if it's one of the apostles or anything like that, they're typically addressed to a specific person at a specific time for a specific reason. And it's helpful to know the reasons and some of the background because some of the things they say are meant to be understood by the people at that time. So Sardis, being a, a more or less a fortress city, would have been in and out, would have been a constant string of soldiers, different armies, and it was very much a, uh, a kind of a military town as, as we would call it now. So what he's talking about here, for he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. It's imagery we see in response to Jesus a lot, okay? It means purity, things like that. But here, what he's pointing to is these white garments that are, it's the spoils of the victor. If you're a victorious army or a victorious soldier, you win the games, you win any kind of a contest, you were given a white robe signifying that you were victorious, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. That goes two ways. The book of life is a victor would be written down in the rolls. So they had a, a, a book or probably a scroll at that time. When the victors in the games or the historical record of any sort of a battle that they went into, they would write the names of the participants, of the victorious participants would be in there. Okay, now we also know that obviously from the book of life, and he's alluding to that, but he's using an imagery that they would understand. When I win, my name will be written in this book. Okay, so he's using this imagery that they understand. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Very much like the victor or anybody who excelled in a battle would be brought before their commanding officer for commendation and recognition. So he's using these three bits of this military imagery to tell them, when you overcome, you'll receive these things. 
This isn't a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And when you hold on and you overcome, you will receive everything and more that you see these victors in the natural battles that we have receive. So this is what he's talking about here. Revelation 3, 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each one of the letters or the, or the, the sections that are devoted to a church, they all end that way. And I'll talk more about that later. But they all end, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so moving on, Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Okay, a little bit about, about Philadelphia. Philadelphia is about... 25 to 30 miles or so southeast of Sardis. Okay, so it's in the neighborhood, but it's far enough away to where it wasn't an easy trip. Philadelphia, by the way, fun fact, what do we call the Philadelphia here in the United States? It's got a nickname, right? Brotherly love. That actually comes from this Philadelphia, all the way back there. The founder of this the founder of Philadelphia was King Ecumenes, In 189 BC, he founded it and he named it in honor of his brother, King Attalus. Okay, they had a very special relationship. You can learn about that, but they're very supportive of one another. And he actually named this town, the city of brotherly love, in honor of his brother, another king. Fun fact, not really spiritual, but just so that you know. This church was also probably founded by Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he traveled around on his missionary journeys. Most likely, he founded this church because he spent a lot of time in Ephesus, and it was all pretty close there. So this is where we are, Revelation 3.8. I know your deeds. By the way, I don't know if I was clear on this. This is all Jesus Christ speaking. This is what he's giving to, to John, and he's saying, write this down. So all these words, if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, okay, this would all be in red. Okay, so these are the words of Jesus Christ that we're, that we're hearing here. So, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, that sounds a little bit interesting. The open door here, by the way, is admission into the kingdom. It's not really any secret imagery. He's talking about... Im- Entry into the kingdom. Now it refers back to the key of David, okay, which going all the way back to Old Testament refers to what can open the gates of heaven. So Revelation 3.9, we've got this one on screen. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So if you remember when we were teaching through, I taught what the synagogue of Satan was. But what the synagogue of Satan essentially was, was Jews who had basically given up their heritage. They were still Jews in name. They were still Jews, at least on the surface in practice, but they were no longer observing the Sabbath. They had actually turned traitors or infiltrators into the Christian church, and they were working very closely hand-in-hand with the Roman government in many ways to persecute Christians. Okay, so they called themselves a synagogue. They called themselves Jews, but only in name. Jesus actually goes further, and he calls them a synagogue of Satan. The point here is that he's saying, Whatever you're going through, don't worry about their trials, the things that they're doing to you, their persecution, their subversion, all the tricks that they're trying to play on you. Don't worry about that because if you hold true, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Just another one of the ways that Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I get it. I get it. But hold on because this is your reward. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, who's ever heard the word tribulation? Okay, who's ever gotten into an argument over tribulation? (laughs) 
<laughs> Pretty much everybody who's ever heard the word tribulation has said, oh, I'm a, I'm a pre-tribulation kind of guy. I'm a mid-tribulation. I'm a post-tribulation kind of guy. Uh, I believe in just the great tribulation. Chapters 6 through 19 deal deeply in depth with tribulation and the different versions of it, okay? So I'm not going to hear in this one, I'm not going to go into, here's what I think it is. I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself, but we're going to do that when we get to chapter 6 through 19. But keep this in mind. Remember this scripture. Because you've kept the word, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That's something interesting to remember. So when we get there, that'll all be a little bit more clear. Let's move on, though. Revelation 3, 14. Oh, I've got that one here. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Okay, so the church in Laodicea, it's in, um, it's very close to, it's what we would call Turkey now. It's very, very close to Ephesus. Again, it's all kind of in this Asia Minor region. And I've taught this before, but for the sake of those who maybe didn't hear it before, it's got two neighbors. When you hear this, uh, this scripture that I'm about to read here about hot and cold, it's got two very, very close neighbors. One is Heropolis, and the other one is Colossia. Okay? Heropolis has hot springs. It's very known for hot springs, medicinal, therapeutic hot springs. Very well known for that. Now, Colossia has cool springs, cool, clear, flowing water, both of which are destinations. But Laodicea doesn't have that. Laodicea actually is in a place where they, they're manufacturing, they're, they're making all kinds of money manufacturing things. In fact, they're known for um, textiles and for uh, medicine and science and for banking. They're known for all these sorts of things, but they don't have water. So what they've done, they've built an aqueduct that runs all the way from the springs. And by the time that water gets there, aqueducts weren't very well engineered and designed. They got the water there, but they're not like iron pipes today. By the time it got there, it was warm, and it was all mucky from the, the pipes themselves coming apart. It had dirt in it. It was, you could live on it. You could live on it. You could use it for your manufacturing and stuff but it wasn't anything anybody would seek out, okay? So have that in mind when we read Revelation 3, 15 to 17. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Some, uh, some uh, historical books say that the water here was actually so bad that it would make you throw up if you drank it. So they just used it for, for cleaning and for manufacturing, really. But this is what he's saying. Again, he's using that local something they would have understood. I would rather you were this desirable thing or this desirable thing. Now, what he's not saying, he's not saying, I wish that you were cold, Keep that in mind. A lot of people say that. So, so you're saying, I can be hot, I can be full of zeal and fervor for Jesus, or I can be cold and it's just the same? That's not what he's saying. He's saying essentially, hey, if you're, if you're hot, fantastic. If you're cold, we can work with that. But if you're lukewarm, if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what Jesus had to offer, and after hearing that, you're still going, eh, Take it or leave it. What good are you? This is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I, it's not that I'd rather you're cold, but I can work with cold. If you've heard the gospel and it hasn't changed you, it hasn't changed your life, then I don't know what's going to. This is what this letter is saying. So, essentially their wealth, their, they had immense wealth there. They were known as, as probably the richest city in the region, maybe next to Rome, in terms of just how, how rich their people in general were. But he's saying, your wealth has helped you to mask the symptoms of being spiritually dead. You don't have need for a miracle, so you're not praying for miracles. 
You have everything that you need, and if you don't, you can buy it. So you think. This is what he's talking about. Then Revelation 3.18, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So these are three worldly things that they do. Gold, so if they're into banking, they're a major banking center, gold is a big thing. They have plenty of actual gold that's there. White garments, doing the the textile mills that they have, they're very famous for those things. And then lastly, um, medicine and science, but specifically, there was an ISAV that they were very well known for that was incredibly popular. He's taken their three primary... uh, worldly things that they produce there, the things that they put their faith in. I don't know how much I need Jesus because I am selling this ISAV hand over fist and I've made myself and my family rich. So they don't see it. What he's offering them here is the spiritual versions of the earthly things they had come to rely on. And he's telling them, you want to be really rich? Buy from me gold refined by fire. He's helping them to see that they can't put all their faith in that. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. So here's an important thing about this. We've heard this scripture before, right? Most of us probably have. We've seen it and heard it typically taught in terms of an individual revelation. Jesus Christ is pursuing you. He is knocking. All you have to do is let him in. We've seen it that way. We've heard it taught that way. This, though, in this situation, you have to look at it in context. Revelation, at least this section of it, is written corporately to these churches, And this is no different. So it doesn't shift from a corporate standpoint to all of a sudden pinpointing a person and then back out. He's talking to the church and he's saying, I stand at the door of the church in Laodicea. And if there is anyone in that church that recognizes my voice, I will come in. This is his offer. We've seen that many times in scripture where if there's only one, We've seen this. If there's only one, I will come in. And that's what he's saying. I stand at the door and knock, and if there's anybody left in this dead church that recognizes my voice, I'll come in. This is what he's talking about here in this context. And then he finishes up the very last scripture in Revelation 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so that's it for the words for the individual churches. Now remember, these, there's seven churches, okay, between this time and chapter two. Seven churches weren't chosen by accident. They were chosen because they're all going through some stuff. They're all struggling with different issues, different problems. And so it's no surprise that he chooses them to write these letters, these words, that is, of encouragement because We go through the same stuff today that they go through. Can you see the modern church today in various ways struggling with some of the things that they were struggling with all the way back then? They were given these words as encouragement, and we have these words of encouragement. So let's recap. I'm going to recap all seven churches. So hang on. We're going to go quick. The church in Ephesus, the very first one, what were they struggling with? Anybody remember? They were sound in doctrine, okay? They knew they were discerning. They could recognize false teaching when they had it. They were, they were very well-based in that stuff, but they had forgotten their first love. Remember, Jesus says you had forgotten your first love. What was the first love? Their first love was grace and unity and love for one another. That's what that church was founded on by the very teachings of Paul himself, So what's today's equivalent of the church in Ephesus? Now, you don't have to point out a specific church or a specific instance, but what if it's those who think that you're not 
worshiping correctly if you don't do it the way they do it. You ever heard somebody teach or tell, uh, tell you about a church that they're going to? This church has it figured out. They know the right way to worship, whether it's worship music, whether it's teaching, whatever it is, they've got it down. And if you're not listening to them, well, you're just a little bit off, and I'll pray for you. This is what we hear. What was the church in Smyrna dealing with? Church in Smyrna, they were suffering poverty because they refused to be hypocritical and renounce Jesus Christ. Remember, in order to join a guild and actually hold down a real job there, you had to profess that the emperor was Lord. And if you refused to do that, as most did, you couldn't hold a real job. You had to beg. So they had extreme, extreme poverty because they wouldn't conform. So today's equivalent, what's today's equivalent of that? We probably don't have it to that degree, certainly, right? What about being ostracized at work or maybe passed over for a promotion because you're that Jesus freak guy? Or you're afraid to openly share Jesus because you're afraid that that's what's going to happen. This is what we deal with today. The church in Pergamos, or Pergamum, depending on the, the version that you have, what were they struggling with? Remember, they were struggling with some teaching that said grace in Jesus Christ means anything goes. You can do anything you want, and it won't hurt you because grace. This is what they were struggling with, this, this false teaching that was really just taking that grace pendulum and swinging it so far in one direction that they were not in balance anymore. Today's equivalent are some teachings that are out there that minimize the penalty for our sinful lives. A lot of churches don't even mention the word sin anymore or judgment. But there is very real judgment that comes our way for sin. And if we teach to where we diminish that, we're falling into the same trap that they were. The church in Thyatira then, what were they struggling with? Well, they were struggling specifically that they were tolerating this person or a type of person called Jezebel who was bringing in all kinds of sins of the flesh. And they were accepting that. They were accepting it because they didn't want to rock the boat. There were so many people in the city partaking in that, in her particular wares, that they didn't want to rock the boat. So they just said, we're just going to kind of overlook that this is happening. That's what they were struggling with. Today's equivalent is anytime we turn a blind eye towards correcting someone in sinful behavior because we don't want to offend. Now, don't get me wrong. Being a Christian is not all about being a bull in a china shop and just rushing in and just pointing out everybody's sin everywhere. That's not what we are to do. But if a Christian brother or sister who you have relationship with is operating in sinful behavior, we are called to hold them accountable for that and call it out. And if we overlook it, we're struggling with the same things that they were there. And then we have the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis that had become the focal point even more so than Jesus. Jesus was minimized. The church itself was the focal point. Today's equivalent, I'm not going to point at any particular church, but churches where smoke and light shows become the thing. Okay? I'm not going to go to that church because they don't have a smoke and light show and they don't have enough volume in their music and, and the pastors doesn't have enough followers on Instagram and all these things that we look at. That's not how we should judge a church. It should be by the spiritual health, but that's difficult to measure. So it's, it's tougher. I get that. The church in Philadelphia struggled with the fact that the synagogue of Satan, as it was called then, it causing trouble causing trouble, but we see that in modern day times. Anytime somebody is allowed to come in and pervert or twist the word of God, they're not teaching it correctly. Maybe it's not obvious enough to where you would stand up and say, that's heresy, and I see it, but it's just enough. We see prosperity gospels. We see name it, claim it. We see those sorts of things, and that's not the true word of God. We have to be careful with that. The church in Laodicea, finally the last one, 
What they were struggling with is that they were so worldly rich that it masked their spiritual poverty. Where do we see that? Pretty much all over the United States compared to the rest of the world. We are so rich as, as a nation that typically we don't have to worry about where our next meal's coming from. We don't have to worry about how am I going to get to the church that's 30 miles away. I'm on my last pair of sandals. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about a roof over our head or health care or having a church building to meet in. We don't have to worry about that, but it can cause us to be wealthy enough to pursue idols. We start idolizing things like a bigger TV, like a nicer car, like a bigger house. We start comparing ourselves to our neighbors like, you ever walk by when the realtor's sign is out there and they got the little bin with the flyers that says with that house? You're looking at it like, what is that? What are they asking for that house? Man, I do, except they're usually out. If you're a realtor, keep those things full just for guys like me. Come on. We can idolize those things that we can purchase because of our wealth, and it lessens our dependence on Jesus. So, question then. I'm way over on my time, so I'm going to try and hurry this up, I promise. The revelation that the Lord chose to deliver through John was meant to encourage the church to persevere in times of trial, in times of tribulation. That's what it was for. But why do you think this final chapter was a corporate one? rather than an individual one. If you think about it, most of the rest of the Bible is either a narrative telling a story or it's directed towards a specific person here and there. Why do you think that is? If we're going to figure out why that is, we need to look for clues, and we look for clues in the Word. That's the best place to find a clue, right? Let's look at the last verse of each word to each one of those churches, which I said is, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to those churches, to the churches. The implication there is that some, even though they hear from Jesus Christ, may not have ears to hear. I don't know how you could hear a word directly from Jesus Christ and not hear it. Well, let's look a little bit more closely. If you've been going here, you know I like Greek lessons, right? There's only one, so pay attention to this one. The word hear, he who has an ear, let him hear. The Greek word in that for hear is akuo, okay? And it means to hear God's voice. It's a verb. To hear God's voice and let it prompt you to faith, okay? That's what that means. It's a verb. It's an action thing. You're going to hear it. Now, we look at the other version of the word hear. Let's look at James 1.22, which is in our mission statement. James 22 says, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That word hearers, that's just a noun. And it's a krotes, which means simply a listener to. You hear it, okay? It goes into your ears, but it's always used in conjunction with ideas of deception or of disobedience, okay? It's certainly not the verb akuo, which we're being told, if you have an ear, hear it. Not just let the words go into your head, but do it. That's what we're looking for. So when we talk about that corporately as a church, so as we've seen now, this message, it's an honest assessment. The entire book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ starts out very, very pointedly talking to these seven churches and pointing out some of the issues that they're having. It's an honest assessment of their current state before admonishing them to do better and giving them reasons to hold on. This is what it's for, but that brings even more clarity to the prophecy that Jesus spoke in, also in the book of John, but back chapter 14, verse 12. When Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Why is that? Why, will, why is Jesus himself saying, hey, you, it's good that I go because you guys are going to do even better things that I've been doing? Why does he say that? He says that because the church as a body made up of individual members has every gift needed, every spiritual gift needed for that body to function at its peak. 
And what do we call a body in the terms of a human body? What do we call a human body that's missing something? That's missing a member, missing a part, an eye, an arm, a nose. It's disabled, it's handicapped. It's going to struggle to do the best that it can. It's no different in the church today. If we are missing the gift that the Lord has given you, this body, anybody, cannot function to its, to its best ability. It's going to struggle in its mission. And so you think about some of the things that churches struggle with. Let's be more precise. Things our church struggles with. Do you see this church in any of those situations in any of those other churches? Now, this isn't a thing of judgment. This is something just simply to ask because I get asked questions about all the time about how's your church doing? Other pastors, other people, visitors, how's your church doing? Here's what they want to know. How many attendees do you have? And how's your tithe doing? How's your budget doing? That's what they want to know. Nine times out of 10, that's what they're asking. They want to know what kind of amenities you offer. Do you have this or that? Do you have heated seats? Do you have theater seating? Do you have, don't laugh. They're out there. They're out there. What do you have? That's what they want to know. They don't want to know about the spiritual health. And they may at some point, they want to know that. But you can't quantify that. So typically they're asking if you're growing, if you're looking for a new building. That's what they want to know. Let me give you a couple quick statistics. Man, I'm going so far over, but I got you guys and nobody's leaving. <coughs> Less than eight, what? It's yeah. Leah says it's good, so you guys. You got two hours. Sweet. Less than 18% of all Americans attend church on any given weekend. Less than 18%. 65% of the population has no real church connection at all. The last decade has witnessed a 19% decline in church attendance. And we can argue the reasons for this, and there are some things where the numbers don't exactly correlate to what's happening. There are 156 million unchurched people in the United States. Look at it this way. If the unchurched people in the United States formed their own nation, okay, it would be the eighth biggest nation in the world, population-wise. It's just our unchurched that are here. 47% of America's unchurched are open to be invited to church by a friend. 47% would be open to being invited to a church by a friend. Whereas only 14% of the population is open to other outreach efforts, such as flyers, newspaper ads, billboards, those sorts of things. Statistically, most churches fail within the first two years. Some estimates say that four out of five new churches will fail within the first two years. Why is that? Complacency. It's complacency. It could be something darker. It could be spiritual battle. We can look at that. But it can be complacency first and foremost because it's just too hard to step up and take our place. Whether we're afraid of persecution, whether we're afraid of whatever it is, but if we're going to thrive as a church, as a body of Christ at large, we can't afford to be complacent. We have to step into our role as a church and as an individual. We can't ever assume that it's someone else's job to love my neighbor, to help the homeless, to feed widows and orphans, to invite a friend to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many times do we say, Somebody else will do that. I'm too busy. We can't afford to do that. Hey, worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. So our response to a message like this could be one of two things. It could be condemnation or it could be conviction. Okay, condemnation does not come from the Lord. So if you're feeling condemned, like, oh, man, I really, I don't do anything, and you feel a heaviness to this, that is not from God. Okay, the Lord will, will correct and rebuke when possible, when necessary, for sure, but you should feel a conviction. 
Conviction doesn't always mean it's going to be easy either. It can be difficult. But conviction, you say, I need to do that. It comes from within. Condemnation comes from without. Do not let yourself be, con- be condemned over something like this. We've been promised since the beginning of time that we would struggle. The Lord knew all the way back then when he put this down and when he gave this vision to John on the island of Patmos to pass on to churches for the rest of time. He knew that we were going to struggle with this two-headed monster of fear of persecution and of complacency. Again, complacency in all its forms essentially comes down to someone else will do it. But he gave us the antidote. He gave us his word. He gave us his spirit. And most importantly, he gave us his son. And our response to that should be to live a life worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. He gave himself so that we could have fellowship with the Father and receive salvation, but also so that those people who have never heard his name can have that opportunity. It's our job to be bold and to follow through with that mission. So our response, bottom line, is to seek the Holy Spirit and then just be obedient to what you hear. Okay, so I'm going to close this message in prayer. But as I do that, I want you to just pray a little extra and just say, Lord, show me what my role in this is. Show me if there's something I should be doing that I'm not seeing. And if you don't hear anything, then fantastic. And there are many of us who are doing exactly what we should be, exactly when we should be doing it. But there are a significant number of people who hear from the Lord but are not obedient in following through. And this body and the church in general is handicapped because of that. So be bold enough to pray that prayer. Be extra bold enough to be obedient to what you hear. Then our response is to take communion together. We'll take communion. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member or anything like that. We invite you to take communion with us. We do it a couple ways. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers, and you just dip into the juice. Up here, we'll have wine, and Gabe and I will serve you, and we do it the same way. You just dip in and take it that way. Let's do this in celebration of what Jesus did for us, in the celebration of the fact that he has always known what we would go through, and he has given us everything that we need. And then the last thing, you feel free to move around, start taking communion as soon as as soon as uh, the band starts playing here. But we're also going to do baptisms. What a greater way to seal that than if you feel the urge to be baptized for the first time. Now, baptism is a public profession of something that the Lord's doing in your heart. It's not a salvation issue, but if you feel the need to get baptized for the first time or for the second or third time as a renewal, if you feel that, then we offer this for you up here. We have towels. I don't have swimsuits or anything, but we do have towels. And there's nothing more powerful than doing that. And if you spontaneously want to do that, just come up front and talk to us, and we'll arrange that for you. And we're going to do it. The band's going to play a couple songs, and then I'm going to bring the the song down, and we're going to ask if anybody would like to. Pray for that, and be bold if you hear that from the Lord. But let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that you are so merciful to us. Despite your foreknowledge of every mistake we would ever make in our life and the fact that we would make far more mistakes than we would do things correctly, Lord, you still chose to send your son for us. Father, you loved us enough to make a way despite all of our failings. Father, we thank you. Lord, our part in this is just to be bold in what you speak to us. So I pray now that you would speak to every one of us separately and in a different way. Tell us what we need to hear. Tell us our response. Tell us your heart for us. And above all else, Lord, show us your love. Because that's where we want to be, in the place where we know that we are pleasing to you. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you and we lift up your name in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.
Oh 